Galatians chapter 1, starting verse 3. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached. Let him be accursed. As we said before. So say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you, then that you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your anointing. We thank you, Lord God, for your Holy Spirit. And we pray once again that your Holy Spirit would have full freedom this morning. Do the work that is needed to be done inside each and every one of us. Father, we know your word never returns void. And we pray this morning that there would be an anointing upon that word, an anointing upon myself, an anointing upon the congregation this morning. That we would receive fully and even more so, as your word says, exceedingly abundantly above all. That we could even think to ask this morning, do that kind of a work inside of us, O God, that we leave the sanctuary this morning changed and increased in your spirit. We thank you and we believe you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. How many of you believe the word of God this morning? All right. How many of you believe the word of God this morning? Amen. Amen. God is good. Yeah. So some of it, as you probably have already noted, is going to sting a little bit this morning, but really and truly just trying to read the word of God and believe it. I'm going to go back to the scripture that we just read in Galatians. I want to go to verse number four, talking about Jesus who gave himself for our sins, who gave himself for our sins. So simple. So foundational, but sometimes we go so deep into the word of God that we leave the simple things behind and we forget the simple truth of the one that we serve. If it's all right with you this morning, I really do feel like it's going to be kind of quick. I know that's all right with you, but I just want to speak to you about Jesus this morning. I just want to talk about him a little bit. I don't know that we're going to get into any Hebrew. I don't know that we're going to get into any Greek. We'll see where the Holy Ghost takes us this morning. I don't know how many puzzle pieces we're going to put together. But I really just want to talk to you about Jesus Christ. I just want to talk to you about our Lord and Savior this morning. Does anybody love the Lord this morning? Anybody fans of Jesus Christ? Do you remember what he did? It's been a long time ago. The earth has drawn a circle around the sun over 2,013 times since he did what he did. Maybe a little over, maybe a little under. So easy to forget. Who gave himself for our sins. That's a that's a huge price to pay. That he might deliver us from the present evil world. 
according to the will of God. In translation, it says, and our father, what it really would say is according to the will of God, our father. According to the will of God, our father, I got it. You got to recognize when Paul is writing to the church at Galatia, there's no New Testament yet. Maybe you should be reminded that Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a Jew of high repute. He had a reputation above that of his brethren. He was partial to the Sanhedrin. He was a leader in what he calls, I believe later on in this same book, the book of Galatians, the religion of the Jews. Paul is a serious guy. He's living in a serious time and he's writing some serious letters, which would later become two thirds of your New Testament. Paul is recognizing the price that Jesus paid to deliver us, as he says, from this present evil world, according to the will of God, our father. In other words, he's saying, according to the will of the God of the Old Testament. This has always been his plan. Verse five, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That sounds like a stopping point. I can't prove this and you don't have to believe it. But I've written a lot of sermons. I've delivered a lot of messages. I've written one book that I don't recommend you look up because I don't like it anymore. And I've written a lot of other things and just to sit down and write. I can sort of maybe tap into the mind of of an author such as Paul. Everything that he wrote in the first five verses. And then he ends it, but he doesn't end it. But he says to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. There was probably something in his heart and in his mind saying that's enough. Who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our father. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he thought about his audience and he thought, well, they're not going to get it. They're not going to understand everything that I'm saying because they can't see inside my mind. They can't see inside my heart. I feel like that's enough to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. But now let me revisit that for a second. Let me explain it a little bit deeper. So he starts out and he he addresses his audience directly. Verse six. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ into another gospel. Paul says, I marvel. Paul is mystified. Paul is bewildered. It's unbelievable what he's seeing in the church of Galatia. Paul, who writes, and I can't tell you at what point in his life one thing happened versus another thing, but Paul, who at some point in his walk with Christ, became a man who he wrote of himself, that understood all mysteries and knew all things at some point was called up to the third heaven and saw things that it is unlawful for a man to utter or write. Remember Paul's conversion experience. He's on the road to Damascus and he sees a light and Jesus Christ himself appears to Paul and witnesses to him one on one. Paul gets to ask him questions and he gets answers and nobody that was with him was were able to see what he saw or hear exactly what he heard. But they knew that something happened and they were also affected. 
it was the glory of what happened on that road was so magnificent that Paul could no longer see. It was almost equivalent to when Moses was called up the mountain and he asked to see God's glory. And God said, you wouldn't be able to stand in my glory. So I'll just show you a glimpse. I'll show you the backside of my glory. And Moses came down and his face was shining and nobody could look upon his face or else they would be blinded. That's a pretty amazing thing. You would think after an experience like that, let me just try to put it into into our terms. If I was walking down the street to wherever and a, a light appeared and stunned me and everybody that I was with and I saw Jesus and I got to talk to him and I walked away completely blind and I had this amazing experience with Jesus Christ. The next time that I saw what would be amazing to other people, if somebody hits a walk-off grand slam and wins the World Series tonight, I don't even know if it's the last game or if it's tonight, but let's pretend like it. And I just had the road to Damascus experience. I don't think I'd be like, oh my God, that was amazing. I'd be like, eh, that was cool, I guess. Not compared to what I saw yesterday, but that was all right. Everyday things that would normally amaze you wouldn't really be that amazing if you had some of the experiences that Paul had. Yet, he stands here and he says, I marvel, I'm mystified, I'm amazed that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Which, he says in verse 7, is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. We'll go ahead and talk a little bit about some Greek. Here where he says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ. The Greek word there is charis Christos. Charis meaning grace, Christos meaning Christ unto another gospel. And it's a very, in my mind, a very interesting term. The charis Christos. That you have been so soon removed from the grace of Christ. Let me tell you why I think that's so amazing. Because Christ means the anointed one, the anointed one. How do we explain what that anointing is? That anointing is so powerful. The Bible says that it is able to break yokes, break bondages and break the chains of sin in your life. Does anybody in this room have any situation in which you could use the anointing of God in your life right now? Do you have any bondages that need to be broken? Do you have any chains in your life that are beset around you? Do you have any yokes upon your neck that are not of God? This is the part where you say amen. If you need any of those things in your life, if you need any of those things broken, the anointing is the thing that breaks it. Let me put it to you like this. There were many men, they were sitting and having a meeting and they were talking about how Jesus was causing such a disruption. They needed to find a way to stop him. They were sitting in a, in a group of Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the judges, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. And one of the leaders stood up and said, why don't you just let him do his thing? There have been many that have come before him. I want you to hear me. This is an actual meeting that took place. You can read about it in your Bible. There have been many that have come before him. You can read about it in the book of Acts. What happens is... Eventually, they say something wrong, they do something wrong, they lose their passion, their motivation. Something happens, and once that happens, the group begins to dissipate, the leader goes somewhere else, and it never really works out. So why don't you just let him do his thing, let him paint himself into a corner, 
Let him contradict himself. Let him say a, a blasphemous word against God. Whatever's going to happen, just let it happen like it's happened a hundred times before. There have been, he's got a small group. We've seen people with larger groups come through and everything's going to be fine. Just let it naturally disintegrate. What they didn't know about and what they didn't count on was the anointed one. They didn't understand the anointing of Jesus Christ. You see, eventually out of that meeting would come one leader of the Sanhedrin in John chapter three named Nicodemus. And he would walk up to Jesus at night and he would say, Master, Rabbi, we know that you are sent from God because no man can do the mighty works that you do. No man can teach the way that you teach unless he is sent from God. What is the difference between Jesus Christ, the true Messiah, and all of the other false messiahs that came before him? They were all charismatic. They all had great followings. They all had groups of people. They all caused a disruption in the land of Israel. But there was only one who walked in the anointing of God. There was only one that when they finally took up stones to stone him and they looked up, he disappeared into the crowd. There is only one who could spit into the dirt, make mud out of it, rub it on a blind man's eyes and allow him to have sight again. There is only one that raised Lazarus up from the dead. There is only one that can make a lame man walk. There was only one that gave deaf people back their hearing. There was only one man who had the anointing of God to walk into a camp of leprosy, to lay hands on those who were unclean and untouchable and see them healed in his own name. There was only one who made promises that never became unfulfilled. There was only one who ever walked in that amazing, incredible, undeniable, invaluable anointing of God that we so desperately want. And eventually there was only one who paid the price for that anointing. Which is why he was called Jesus Christ. Christ is not a last name. It's a title and it means anointed one. The anointed one. His group didn't dissipate. His group didn't disintegrate. His group didn't go away. He started out with 12 men 2,000 years ago. Now he's up to billions. It's never gone away. And it's never going away. Here's the thing about that anointing. That anointing oil, which is referenced in the Old Testament to give you symbolically an idea of what the anointing itself is like in New Testament times, had a base of olive oil. And it had four other ingredients on top of that olive oil. The only way, as I've mentioned probably the last two or three weeks in a row, so maybe some of us need to get this, that they are able to extract the oil from that olive is to crush it between two massive stones. Everybody say, I want the anointing. I just tricked you. You might not have wanted to say that, but you said it anyway. When you say that you want the anointing, and trust me, you do. And when you say that you want to be anointed, and trust me, you want to be. It sounds really good because we talk about miracles. We talk about blind men receiving sight and deaf men receiving their hearing. We talk about those being raised from the dead. We talk about the power of God in us. But what we don't like to talk about 
is when you say, I want the anointing and I want to be anointed and I want that on my family, what you're asking God for is to crush you a little bit. Because what you have to do in order to be anointed, you have to be like John the Baptist, willing to decrease that he may increase. The only way that you decrease in God is if you allow your flesh to be crushed. If that flesh gets crushed, that anointing can come forth. When Jesus Christ was crushed in the Garden of Gethsemane, it poured out of his forehead in a way of blood and sinless and pure and perfect blood. And when that anointed blood drips on a cursed ground, it redeems everything in a way in which nothing else could work. So when you ask for the anointing, you're asking for the crushing of the olive. And you, my friend, are the olive. You're asking to be crushed that that anointing would pour out of you. There are four other ingredients that we could preach sermons on. One of them has to be emacerated, which means it has to be dunked in water and totally covered for a period of time until everything, until it can become almost petrified when you pour it out so that it can be crushed in another manner and sprinkled in the oil as well. Another one has to be literally beaten out of the tree in which it resides with whips. They used to do it amazingly enough and because to just uh, put a spigot in it and turn it on like maple syrup. It didn't come out fast enough. So they went to the tree and they took cats of nine tails and whips and they beat it and slashed it until it poured out of the tree. So I'll let you go ahead with your imagination and figure out what that means. But when you're asking to be anointed, when you're asking for all of the ingredients of the anointing oil in your life, when you're asking for that power with God, you have to be cognizant of the fact that you are saying that you're willing to pay the price. For that anointing. That is heavy, but I'm going to release you a little bit from that burden before we end the sermon today. Grace to you and peace from God, the father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians one, three, who gave himself. Everybody say crushed. Then he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, the charis Christos. The Christos is the anointing that we just spoke of. Sounds heavy and it sounds deep and it is. But thank God it's preceded by this word charis. I want to talk to you about this word for a second. The translation Charis is a feminine noun. That is that distinction is important because you are the church and the church is the Greek word ecclesia and the church always has a uh, a feminine root because we are considered the, to be the bride of Christ. It doesn't matter if you're male or female as a human being. When God looks at the church, he looks at it as his bride ecclesia and he's given to his ecclesia charis, which is grace. That grace is defined as that which affords joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness, goodwill, loving kindness, favor of the merciful kindness by which God exerting his holy influence upon souls turns them to his son. It keeps, it strengthens, and it increases in knowledge, affection, And it kindles to exercise Christian virtues. The spiritual condition. This is all from the the Greek definition out of the Strong's Concordance. 
the spiritual condition of one governed by the power of divine grace, the token or proof, the benefit, the bounty, the thanks. Total, it's used 156 times in the Bible. Translated as grace, favor, thanks, thank, pleasure, and a few other things. Paul, I think, marvels. Paul, I think, is amazed. Because while it benefits us, and it benefits me, to tell you and teach you about the price of that anointing of Jesus Christ. By the way, did you know that when you get saved, you are called a Christian? Do you know what Christian means? It means little Christ. He said, greater things than I have done shall you do. Not as an individual necessarily, but as a group. We can be in billions of places, and he could only be in one place when he was here. But he poured out his spirit inside of us, and now there's greater things that we can do, but only if we act as him, only if we are little Christs, only if we are little anointed ones, only if we are disciples, those that follow the discipline, a disciplined pupil of Jesus Christ, only if we are Talmudzin is the Old Testament word, only if we stick close to the word of God, only if we believe that. Before I get totally into combining the Charis and Christos, I want to talk to you about just, just a regular run-of-the-mill word that was on my heart this morning that I believe is part of this message, the word focus. Everybody say focus. When I'm praying and I'm trying to listen in my spirit about what do I speak to the people of Edgewater Church about today, God took me to Galatians, but then after I studied that for a second, I think it was right before worship started or while we were in worship, I could hear the Holy Spirit for the first time all week because I wasn't getting anything all week long. I heard him saying, focus, 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 focus. So I don't know where you're at as an individual. I know where I'm at as an individual. But there are times and seasons in all of our lives. And what I feel like the Holy Spirit is saying to you this morning is to focus. You've got to focus. You've got to focus your vision. You've got to focus your heart. You've got to focus your determination. You've got to focus your motivation. You've got to focus your passions. You've got to focus your calling. You've got to focus your mind this morning on him because there are so many things that are pulling it out of focus. Focus means a few different things in a few different realms of life. As a cognitive process, it means selectively concentrating on one aspect of your environment while ignoring all other things. Let me try that again. Selectively concentrating, everybody say Jesus, on one aspect of the environment, everybody say Christ, while ignoring other things. It means selectively, selectively concentrating. Let all of your concentration selectively be set on him, but it is not fully focused on him unless you are also purposely ignoring other things that are around you. Is this giving you problems? Ignore it for a little bit because nothing is too big for Jesus Christ. Come on, somebody. This is for me, if not anybody else. Ignore all the things around you that you can't take care of. You're not prepared to. You don't have the knowledge to. You don't have the energy to. You don't have the motivation to. You never thought you'd be looking at it. He says, well, stop looking at it. Stop looking at it for a moment and selectively concentrate on him. If you selectively concentrate on him, everything else grows strangely dim. 
And he, be- he can begin to take care of it for you, selectively concentrating on one aspect while ignoring other things. In optics, it means a point towards which light rays are made to converge. A point towards which light rays are made to converge. Jesus Christ said, I am the light of the world. And then he turned around and said, you are the light of the world. And no man puts a light under a bushel, but he lets it be exposed where all men can see it. The convergence of all of those light rays. Let me try it like this. Raise your hand in this room if you are a light. Raise your hand if you are the light of the world. Let me remind you, keep your hands up. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. So now raise your hand if you are the light of the world. Please raise your hand if you're the light of the world. Raise them up high. This is, an, this is I need visual aid. Okay, look at all of the lights in this room. Now raise your hand if on a daily basis, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all throughout the week, you're around all these people all day long. Nobody, right? So we have individual light rays spread out across the community, and that's great. Here he says, focus means a point at which all the light rays are made to converge. Selectively concentrate on an aspect of your environment, Jesus Christ, and then come to a point where the light rays converge. Focus, focus, focus. It doesn't have to be Edgewater Church. It does for all of you who are here right now. But maybe tomorrow night, there's a conference going on at the church down the street. Feel free to go because there's a lot of light rays out there in the community that are going to converge in that place tomorrow night. Maybe there's something going on Saturday and you have the free time and you're trying to find somebody to go with you. Feel free to go. Maybe Lakewood's having a concert. Feel free to go. Because the only way to focus your attention on Christ is to find a place where light rays converge. Are you the only Christian in your household? No, you're not. Well, then that's a place of converging light rays. Get together with your family and pray. Get together with your wife or your husband and read the Bible. Get the kids together around the table. Converge the light rays so you can focus your attention on him. And linguistics is a concept referring to the way that information in one phrase relates to information that has come before. The disciples asked Jesus. I don't know if I want to use that scripture here. A concept referring to the way information in one phrase relates to information that has come before. Let me try it like this. Jesus Christ said, I did not come to destroy the law and the old prophet and the Old Testament and the prophets, but I came to fulfill it. In other words, he's saying, I am going to take everything they thought they knew and you thought you knew, and I'm going to use different phrases to relate to what came before. I'm not going to destroy it. I'm going to fulfill it. If you will focus on me, I'm going to take everything you thought you knew about God. I'm going to magnify it. I'm going to intensify it. I'm going to make it known. I'm going to show forth the mystery. But the only way that you get that revelatory knowledge is if you get in the word of God, where one phrase shows you how to relate to something that came before. Jesus Christ said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That means he came before and he'll be there at the end. If you want to understand how he looks at the end and what that means in your life, he says, I gave you a schoolmaster which came before. If you can put the entire word of God together, all 66 books, let me tell you what happens. You get in your Bible. Do this for me. Study out the menorah. 
It has bowls, it has knobs, and it has almonds or handles, depending on what translation you're reading. Add all of those things up. Three on one side, three on the other side, they're all equal. The one in the middle has extra parts. You add everything together, guess what happens? You come up with 66 parts. And the menorah is the thing that shed forth the light. It was the lamp inside of the temple that lit everything else. David said, your word, O God, is a lamp unto my path and a light unto my feet. 66 parts that the oil flowed throughout to produce the light. Take the word of God. Consume it. It will be a light unto your path and a lamp unto your feet. Everybody say focus. Focus. Oh, the last one's a smartphone. We don't need to, we don't need to talk about that. There are so many different meanings. There's so many different ways. I want to go back to the first one, selectively concentrating on one aspect of the environment while ignoring other things. Remember that, and let's go back to Galatians. The Charis Christos. Is the anointing a deep, hard-to-understand, difficult thing? It sounds that way. But let me tell you why I think Paul was mystified. He said, I marvel that you're so soon removed so soon removed from the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Why was he so mystified? Because we need that anointing. We need that power. And it comes through crushing, and it comes through grinding, and it comes through beating, and it comes through so many other ways. It's such a difficult price to pay, and you are a little Christ, so there's always a price to pay. But the marvel of that is that before the Christos, before the anointing, comes the charis, comes the joy, comes the pleasure, comes the thankfulness, comes the overwhelming goodness, comes the loving kindness. In other words, what Paul is saying right here is I marvel that you are so soon removed from this weighty, priceless, valuable thing that there's no way you could possibly pay for that is so hard to understand. Did Jesus Christ have one moment of ecstasy or joy as he was paying for that anointing? Do you think he enjoyed one second of having his beard ripped out, his back beat off, his palms punctured, his feet punctured, the crown of thorns on his head, a spear in his side? Was any of that pleasurable? His clothes being torn off and they're casting lots right before him, making fun of him, being ridiculed, sticking vinegar up on his face. Did he enjoy any of that? Was any of that enjoyable? I think from the word go, when he walked into the garden of Gethsemane, stay with me, we're going somewhere. When he walked into that garden, he knew from that moment and you should know from that moment. He got down on his knees and he prayed. Father, if there's any way, please let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. He had to pay the ultimate price. What you and I get to do is we get to step into the garden, so to speak. We get to get down on our hands and knees. And we get to say, thank you, Father, for the price that was already paid. I accept, Romans chapter 10, what Jesus Christ did for me. I accept that he died for my sins. I accept that he rose three days later. I believe that he is my Lord and my Savior. And the Bible says... If any man cries out unto the Lord, that's all that it takes. 
Paul is mystified because there was a price that was paid. You don't have the capacity to pay it. I don't have the capacity to pay it. We got to walk right into it. And instead of mixed with the heartache, the crushing, the vinegar, the stinging, the persecution, at least right away. It's mixed with joy, pleasure, loving kindness, the grace of Jesus Christ. We're transferring over from an old to a new. And Paul marvels. Let's read it again in the book of Galatians chapter one. I marvel, verse six, that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the charis Christos unto another gospel. In other words, he's saying him that literally called. I want you to think about yourself as a Christian. I really want you guys to get this. You have God in heaven. Who Isaiah 53 says. That he knew beforehand the crushing and the beating and the torment that would be placed on his dear son. And he allowed him to take it anyway. That whosoever loves him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Everything that he took, the price that he paid. And God is standing in heaven and he's calling out to you and to me. Those that do not deserve it. He's calling out and he's saying, Don Gardner, I'm calling you into the cares Christos. I know your past. I know your I know your shape, I know your form, I know your frame, I know your sins and your shortcomings, but I'm calling you into the Charis Christos right now. Cameron Yarberry, I'm calling you into the Charis Christos. Do you understand the privilege? Don Caldron, I'm calling you into the Charis Christos. Victor Morris, I'm calling you into the Charis Christos. Adriel Morris, I'm calling you into the Charis Christos. Gary Spielman, everybody in this room... God is standing in heaven and he's saying, my son paid the price and it wasn't fun. My son is the anointed one and he had it cost him a lot to get there. It hurt like something you'll never want to endure, but it's already been paid for. And now it's mixed with the joy and pleasure of the grace of Jesus Christ. And you don't deserve it, but I'm calling you out by name. I've opened a door and I've called you into the Charis Christos. And we accept that. And we walk in that and we believe in that. But then something happens. You, it's hard to respect something that you're given versus something that you had to pay for. So then they turn around in the church of Galatia and they're so easily persuaded backwards to another gospel. Verse seven says, which is not really another gospel, but there are some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. I looked that word pervert up in the Greek and it means to turn specifically to turn back. Christ, God called you into the Charis Christos. And you turned a 180 and you did good. But then some of us turn a 360 and we end up going backwards. If we're religious people, we go backwards into the Old Testament. If we're fleshly people, we go backwards into our sin and our degradation and the life that we left behind. Paul looks at both of those and he says, I marvel that you're so soon removed. Can I give you my opinion? The book of second Galatians written by me. This is what I would say. In verse number six, I marvel at the church because it seems like the vast majority don't even know they were called into the charis Christos. 
We don't even know that we've been given something so powerful mixed with something so joyful. That we've been given something so valuable without being required to pay the full price. And because we didn't have to pay the full price, we don't recognize the value of the thing we've been given. You got to realize when Paul is writing to the church at Galatia, the Romans are still occupying the Jewish land and the Jews still hold the reins of the religion in the land. The la- you could get by if you were Jewish and you figured it out. You could definitely get by if you were Roman and you followed the rules. The last thing you wanted to be when Paul was writing this is a Christian. Because you're coming against the religion of the Jews and the law of the Romans. So Paul's writing and it's a very difficult time. Those people, let me see if I can put it in perspective. A friend of mine housed a missionary from Africa. True story. Once upon a time. He was driving him around Houston, taking him somewhere nice to eat. And he was asking him stories. And the guy was telling him stories about all the different places in Africa that he had ministered over the past however many years. Talking about amazing miracles, everything you read about in the Bible, and then some talking about with the witch doctors and the spirits and the things being cast out and people being healed and people being raised from the dead. The whole nine, he's talking his ear off. And the guy says, man, that's amazing. He says, so how long have you been over here evangelizing or, or whatever in America? And the guy said, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it was somewhere between two to five years. Not a, very long, but long enough. And he said, so like, what kind of things have you seen happen over here? And the guy said, honestly, since I've been evangelizing over here, I haven't seen a single miracle of note that I would remember to tell you. I think I've seen some, but I can't remember. And my buddy said, well, well, you know, why is that? What happened? And he was like, people over here, they don't know that they need God. He's got a church on every corner, and that's great. There's also a pharmacy on every corner. We don't have that. They don't have that in Africa. When somebody gets sick, they need God to heal them. When somebody walks into their camp and they're, and they're seeking a witch doctor, when there's a spiritual thing, there's nobody over there to diagnose them with, with mental illness or whatever else you want to call it. When those crazy things happen, they need demons cast out. That's the only route. There's no, there's no antipsychotic drugs. There's no psychotropic thing that can help them out. They need Jesus. They need God. When somebody's on their deathbed, there's not a machine that can keep them alive. They have to have God to raise them up from the dead. Combine that with another story I heard of a minister on TBN who said uh, he was partnered with a man in Africa and they were sending him money and they were sending him other things to help with their church. And one time he sent a letter and he said, man, I just want you to know our whole church, we really are praying for you guys. And um, and all of your, uh, what's the word, I'm thinking depravity, but it was something a little bit nicer. Basically referring to the fact that they didn't have much. And the guy wrote back and he said, thank you and we appreciate it and we want you to know that our church is praying for you and all of your prosperity. And the guy was like, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, we might not have much, but God moves. And we've been to America and we understand you guys have a lot, but sometimes it's real difficult to see him move. So Paul marveled because they were called into the Charis Christos, but they understood they were called into that. I marvel because so many of us don't even understand it. Because what do we need the Charis Christos for? We have padded seats and air conditioning. When we leave here, we have money in our pockets so we can go buy lunch. 
We know where our next meal is coming from. We know where our next thing is coming from. Put it in perspective. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ into another gospel, which is not another gospel, but there are some that trouble you that would pervert the gospel of Christ, that would convince you to turn back. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so sad now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. So I want to encourage you this morning. You've been called into an amazing gospel. You serve a God that is unlike any other. You've been called into a charis Christos, and I want you to know that. I want you to understand that. You've been giving something of great value, and you have not had to pay the full price. Now, we watched a video before this sermon started that said, make no mistake, God is asking you to give everything, and that's absolutely true, but I'd put it to you like this. Salvation is a free gift. It is free. You cannot earn it. You cannot buy it. You can't give enough to the poor to become saved. It requires none of those things for you to be saved. But if you decide to walk in that salvation... And not just accept it and turn back. But if you decide to walk in that salvation, it will cost you everything. It's a free gift, but it will cost you everything. And that sounds daunting, but it's actually a good thing. It's a very good thing. We serve an amazing God. Jesus Christ. I want to point out one thing. This is really a totally different, this is a whole other sermon, but hopefully it ends up this sermon well. In the radical book, in the video that we saw, it said that we serve a master who asks us for everything. And that's partially true. But we also serve a master who at one point in the word of God said, I no longer call you servants, but friends. You serve a God who looks down at you and says, I will be a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He has called you friend. And when you walk into that Charis Christos and you focus the way that we talked about focusing that morning, you, this morning, you get to see Jesus Christ in a light that the rest of the world doesn't get to see him in. And if I could take a step further, You get to see him in a light that a lot of people in church don't get to see him in. If you'll stand in that anointing, if you'll ask for that anointing, if you'll believe in that anointing, but you'll let it be mixed with the grace of Jesus Christ, and you'll focus by purposely setting your sights on him while ignoring other things. Jesus came down to this earth as a humble man. When people looked on him, They didn't see him any differently than they see me and you. His disciples did sometimes, and then sometimes they didn't understand. They asked him at one point, can you just show us the Father and it will suffice? And he had to remind them, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus Christ is all things. He is a master, but he is a friend. 